Welcome to the Jew and Gentile podcast. I am your host, Chris Katolka, and with me is none other than the Jewish sage himself, the one and only Mr. Steve Herzig. How are you, sir? I am doing good, but Chris, you're dressed for summer. Look at the orange. It's Is that like orange or is that... This is like a... I don't even know what that uh, is. It kind of look brownish, orangish, reddish. It's yeah, got all of it's it It's got a it. summer color. I feel summery. No, I want to ask one sleeve. question. Socks or no socks? No socks. No it's, socks it's for Chris. Summertime. Come this on. This is very important news for our listeners. Is he wearing socks? <laughs> Hold on a minute, everybody. Welcome in, welcome in. No, I'm not wearing socks. Steve knows this. This is a topic of conversation. It's been around for quite some time in our department and has made its way even up to gym showers because I lived in Dallas for several years. And the one thing I picked up from living in Dallas is that people wear loafers and they don't wear socks. And so they wear loaferless or oh, sorry, sockless <laughs> loafers. And so I come up here to the Northeast and I keep my little tradition going well, that I picked up in Dallas. And uh, all of a sudden, people look at me like I've got a third eye. And so one time, I think I preached a message. You were preaching a message. And this was probably seven, eight years ago, I would say. That's right. So we were doing a conference. And uh, I was working under Steve at that time. And Steve... And I was the MC. I was on the side line. What, so I had an uh, angle where you were facing the audience. And I, and you were to the, I was to your side. And I could see behind the pulpit. Exactly. So you see me and you see I'm not wearing socks. And I have to tell you something about Steve. He's the best boss because, honestly, Steve gives a green light to everything possible. He is 100% supportive of everything from podcasts to online tea. You name it. Steve is the best boss to work for. But hey, how much did I give you for that? What? How much? Oh, it was a lot. Uh, a lot. <laughs> I, you promised me a raise. That's what it was. <laughs> So so anyway, he pulls me off of or when I get them the message, he goes, "Where are your socks?" And I said, "Where I'm not wearing socks. I never wear socks. You know that. You know, especially in the summertime." And he goes, "You got to wear socks when you speak." And that was that's the only time as a boss you ever told me to do something. So then you went down to go visit our previous executive director, and I brought you back a gift. That's right, Dr. Elwood McQuaid, who. Maybe some of you know he's written some amazing books for Friends of Israel. He started our radio program. He led our organization for a long time. He heard he heard that conversation somehow. I don't even know how he knew. He heard the conversation and he gave me a pair of Argyle I socks. I had to bring you a pack back a pair of Argyle <laughs> socks and he said, "Hey, tell Chris to put these on." Oh, I thought that was so question uh, so perfect because I I just thought uh, here's a pair of socks. From Dr. McQuaid. He's what a guy, you know. So, uh, but I'm not wearing them today. <laughs> They're sitting in my, his socks are sitting in my office. That's right. You said you would wear them whenever you preach. That's exactly. And so whenever I do speak, I wear a pair of socks. There That's you it. go. Uh, anyway, um, hey, listen, uh, give us a text. Uh, we'd love to give hear from you. Give the telephone number. Yeah, 424-444-1948 is the number, everybody. 424 444 1948. Have we gotten any questions, uh, any comments, Chris? This was a great one right here that comes in um, from uh, the 305 area code. Uh, and it really had to do, uh, it says, um, it had to do with the question of Mahjong. Can you, can you help understand? Who knew that Mahjong would captivate our audience? People want to know what's Mahjong. So maybe you can explain it a little bit be- a different. Uh... Well, in, in, uh, when I was growing up, my mother, I didn't even know it was called Mahjong until much later. I always knew it as Maj. My mother called it Maj, and she's been playing. She's 99. She's been playing at least 72, 73 years, something like that. It is a get-together. It's a community game. It's actually Asian in origin. Yeah. Uh, and it has to do with tiles, um, and they have different faces on them. And you're, there's a card that is sent, the National Mahjong something. And if you're going to play Mahjong, you have to have this card, and it tells you all the different matches. So for those of you who might play hearts or canasta, I, I don't know a lot of those cards. Canasta. Card, uh, those, whatever games, card games you play, uh, they're basically groups. When I, back when college, I played poker, uh, and it was nickel high. Uh, that was BC days before I was a Christian. <laughs> Uh, and so we were big spenders. And so, oh, yeah, big spenders and nickel. That's, that's right. That's right. And so, we, you know, you had to have, you had to, have, you know, full house, three of a kind, four of a kind, uh, run, you know, whatever it is. So, uh, flush. So, with Mahjong, it's, I think it's 
like 24 or 36 tiles that you have, and you turn them over, you pass them to your partner, all this kind of thing. Well, several uh, podcasts ago, we had my daughter on, and she, her grandmother, my mother, uh, was looking for between my two sisters, would you play Maj? No, I'm not interested. My other sister, no, never, Mom. We're not playing Maj. We know you played it. Well, nobody was interested until just a couple years ago when my daughter was interested. And there's a whole bunch of her friends who are interested. And I find out that it's captivating much of the country of people probably within the ages of 23, 24 to say, 50. Yeah. Uh, but but my daughter's in her 40s and she's been playing a couple of years. They love it. It's a com- it's community. The gals get together just like my mother. They get together. They talk. They have common interests. Uh, my daughter's friends are, are believers and they're talking. They have the same age kids and they're going through the same things and they talk about share prayer, record, whatever they do. And they're playing Mahjong. That must make you laugh so much. It's hilarious. And my mother is so happy. Oh, she's, she is so happy. <laughs> Finally, somebody is Somebody playing. gets it. And she even gave my daughter her ivory. You can't even sell them. Any, I mean, you can't even get them. My mother had a Mahjong set that was ivory, made wow. out of ivory. And she gave it to my daughter. Uh, and it's, it's old and it's very fragile. So my, my daughter did get an additional one. It's plastic, um, which is the tiles are now plastic. So either way, that's what Mahjong is. And we're getting questions. What we're was got, the question? Uh, that was it just, you know. Uh, we what had, is it? We had what are some, you guys talking well, about? And also a person who has a Mahjong uh, business had contacted us because they heard about <laughs> did Mahjong. You, did you pass that's, that on to my daughter? I know, but I'll have to do that. That's please a, do that. I, I'll do that. Um, another one comes from area, co- uh, area code 260. And it says this, Steve. It says, "I once uh, I met once with a group who say they are messianic uh, a messianic gathering. I don't understand what it's all about, but here's the question I have because this really bothers me. I noticed they, and uh, I have since learned others, shorten the name of Yahweh to only the first syllable. I won't even type it because it bothers me so." Why would someone abbreviate his holy name? I've grown up with an evangelical with a pastor grandfather slash missionary father and uncle, so I'm no stranger to reverencing his name. Isn't it wrong? That's the question. Are are you talking about G-D? I'm wondering if that's what it is. Yeah, that's what I would—if that's the question, Orthodox observant Jewish people will not write the name of God out because it is so holy. And if they do write the name of God out, they can't destroy it. So when I was in Hebrew school, we had blackboards, believe it or not, back then. Some people might not know what a blackboard, grease board they know, blackboard they don't. What chalk on a blackboard? We weren't, you could not put G-O-D or L-O-R-D on. You always used a hyphen. And the reason you did is you could then erase it. The question is, did anybody ever write G-O-D on the blackboard? The answer is yes. What do you do? You call the rabbi. They bring in custodians. Mm -hmm. They take the board off the wall, (laughs) and they bury it. They bury the whole board. They bury the whole— The whole board is gone. They will not erase God's name. That's right. And, you know, I'm wondering, too, even the idea of shortening—I don't know if it's G-O-D or— but there's a re- such a reverence to the name. It's This all comes from the fence that's built around the law. Yes. So that you don't take the Lord's name in vain. Correct. And so, you know, whether it's the shortening of Yahweh or the shortening of G-O-D, they do it because some, they don't even say. Most Jewish people won't even say the name. They'll just or say, you know, um, uh, Adonai. They or, say Hashem. They say His ha- name. That's right. His name. They'll say Hashem. Yep. Bar- like Baruch Hashem, which is it blessed is the name. Is the name. That's right. But give you another idea, Chris. I had to learn. I I wish I didn't learn, but I did. When I first became a believer, uh, the uh, idea—and I've seen Christians do it all the time, and I've now done it. You have your Bible, right? And you get home. What's the first thing you do? You well, now people are using their phones. So, but if you're carrying a Bible with you, you kind of chuck it, not not fling it, but you kind of drop it it down. Jewish, I would never have done that. Never in a million years. You can't. This is God's word. You would place it down. And you have a, a a drink in front of me. Some people use 
their I've seen it, their Bibles as uh, coasters, mm-hmm. and they'll or or they'll put another book on top of the Bible. Observant Jewish people would never do such a thing, never, uh, because nothing should go on top of God's word, nothing. And so uh, the the idea of the holiness of God's word, it's the same reason. Although this is the same in many Christian Bible-believing churches, when the word is written, not everyone does it, but there is a tradition where say, "Would you please rise as we read God's word?" Yeah, that's they they stole that from us because whenever we take the Torah out of the bima, I mean, it's standing on the bima from the ark, mm-hmm. and the ark from the time if they stand. Can you give some definitions? So you're okay, talking, you're yeah. in a synagogue now, and We're there in are a these synagogue. layers. There is a there is an ark, and the ark is. Uh, usually made out of wood, and there's a, a curtain or glass doors, depends on the synagogue. And that's where the scrolls are kept. The most, and they could be multiple scrolls, they, too. The richer the congregation, the more scrolls mm-hmm. they have. Mm-hmm. It's it, You're rich in God's Word. And so the highlight of Shabbat is opening, opening the ark, and so the the rabbi or cantor or, or people who are going to read the word, uh, who make aliyah, they're going to read the word. They open the ark. By some, saying make aliyah, they're going well, up, up to the. They're ark. going up to the ark and get the Torah scroll. Everybody stands, and now that so the Torah scroll is just coming out of the ark, and people are it's standing. It's a presentation, hundred mm-hmm. percent, and they're hold. If you drop that Torah. 40 days you have to fast. 40 days. 40 days. 40 days. Wow. You could eat it. You could eat at night. You could get something oh, okay. to eat, but you have to fast because you've dropped the word of God. It's an honor and Have a, you ever seen somebody do that? It's a no. I've never n- nobody ha- I wonder if there's a, fear, a YouTube page. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of Almighty God. Yes. That's, right? So the, this is a terror and a delight at the same time. Yes, the feeling of what I'm sure the high priest felt like, you know, you are you're holding, holding out the... God's Look, doesn't that do something for you even the way we're talking? This is we don't think of it that way because there's that, a consequence. This is God's word. So it and it's dressed up, Chris. Oh, the word dressed. is dressed up. You you you're looking at a velvet cover. Mm. It has tingling bells on it. Uh, it's got to be placed in a holder, and there's a while people are standing. It's the honor of a person who's up there. They take off the they'll take off the shield, which usually has the twelve tribes, kind of like the priest is what he wore. But it, it, now it's on the Torah. Scroll. But that's wrapped around the Torah. Scroll. It's it's hung yeah. there. And then they pick up the velvet uh, uh, covering. They take the bells off. Then they hold it up like two hands, two hands, and they will go to the right and to the left, and the congregation sees the Word of God. They place it on the bima. They're standing on the bima and the platform, and they unroll the scroll to the portion of Scripture, the parsha of Scripture that they're going to read, and they don't touch the text. Yeah, you, can, Chris, I don't care. It's like a doctor. A doctor today would never think of doing surgery uh, with, with unclean hands, so yep. he puts on gloves. They don't put on gloves. They have a silver yod, a hand, a pointer, and it's usually shaped something like this yeah, for those who are watching on YouTube. Yep. That's right. And whoever's reading, could be the bar mitzvah boy if it's Shabbat and he's reading the portion of Scripture. It could be the cantor or the rabbi, whatever portion they're going to comment on. But when they read it, they read it with the pointer uh, going through the—I'm going the wrong way—through the Hebrew text, <laughs> right to left, reading the Hebrew text. What and was your text for your bar mitzvah? I forgot already. You forgot? Yeah, I forgot. Uh, I should look it up. Because we should do. We should do like a. We should look it up so you we, can read we, through it we again should for go, the podcast. I, there is a way to go back. Uh, I I have an idea of how to do it. I've thought about going back. Mine was June eleventh, nineteen sixty six. Okay, that was my bar mitzvah day. I would love for you to yeah, read through we, the Hebrew text we, we for your bar mitzvah to, right oh, here. Yeah, and you got to sing it. Oh, and we you should get, have done I, it for your seventieth birthday. Yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway. The the reason I'm telling you all this is there is an outside reverence yeah. for the word that which is great uh, it it teaches us something and but 
if you're just, by the way, as Christians, we could know the word. What did James talk about? Christianity 101. We should be doers mm-hmm. of the word. Well, you know, there's that whole premise of uh, when you see somebody with a Bible that's absolutely beat up and worn out, you know that that person has been reading through the text. There's a even though you've beaten the Bible up, it means that you're soaking in as much. You've got things underlined. You would never do that in a Hebrew Torah scroll. You, oh, in fact, my sister, when I she introduced me to Christ, uh, when I visited her, we both had Bibles from our synagogue. She had hers underlined. I was like outraged. I was this is like, before you became a believer, oh, right? Right. Yeah. I, how could what you're right? You're highlighting your Bible. You can't do. Th- under writing in your Bible, you can't do that. You just you can't do that. Uh, and yet now I mark. Look at <laughs> yeah, it's all marked up. It's Yours all marked has up. been. It looks like you've even had your Bible re. Uh, no, 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 bound? not this one. I had another. I had my Schofield rebound. This is the one I. It's lighter than a. But you've been. St- that's the difference. Is it's interesting because there is something special about the reverence of God's word because. You, you see it even in the way that the Orthodox, when they're walking into a building and they kiss the mezuzah. Exactly. Think Same of all thing. the nasty—I mean, people just touching and kissing all day long that mezuzah, all day long uh, as people walk in and out of the door. That's the, the that's the tor- essentially the law on the doorpost. It's a little tiny Well, box. that's why we fetch all the time. We're kissing this. We got all their germs, and now we got problems. <laughs> But that's a that's something that is again a value of God's word. Or you know, um, next week we're gonna as we wrap up Revelation today, we're gonna talk next week, Steve, about some of the um, uh, the the components that Jewish people wear uh, to, sh- to to Sabbath, um, the the prayer phylacteries. You're gonna bring those dress things in. for worship. Dress for worship. We wear socks, Chris. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's part of what we have to wear. We're going to have to go down to Dallas to see if those Jewish people down there are wearing socks, synagogue. But all that to say, I feel like, um, you know, there's a rev- the reverence is good, too. Because I remember the first time I saw that, I thought, you know what? I used to kind of shake my head at those things as, oh, they're the religious or they're, they're uh, ritualistic. But in reality, though, it does show a reverence to God's word. But the question is, are you doing what it says as well. That's the big question. Well, well, you know, Chris, it brings about a question that's a phenomenon that I've seen in my friends' children, which are around your age now, and I've encountered it several times, that there's a movement amongst people in your age category, middle-aged, younger middle-aged people, uh, who are—they don't want uh, the—what they would call frivolous songs that uh, that are sung. And they they have a relationship with God, and they're looking. I think the term you could correct me, a deeper worship experience. And so we're finding many evangelicals. Uh, now we could we could talk about should they or should they not, but it, I'm telling you factually, and you agree. Mm-hmm. I know you do. We've talked about it. They are going to more what we would call high church, and the reasons that I have heard from people is it gives them. Uh, there seems they say there seems to be more reverence, a more serious approach to their worship, mm-hmm. and that's what Judaism has had. That's the way I was raised. You and I speak in churches, all various types of of churches, uh, usually in the evangelical world, and it's interesting. Even in the evangelical world, you know, I've been to churches where there's loud music and smoke machines and things like that, and uh, you know, yep. it's a it's a concert. And then I've been to ones that are all hymns, um, but there is a sense that I think young adults, you know, I don't even want to call them young adults, but, you know, we're adults now. They are looking for something where it's a little more quiet, and it's a little more, like you said, reverent. And um, it doesn't mean that they don't value God's Word. They still hold it very high in their life. They still, you know, do all that they can to follow Christ and live by the Spirit, uh, yielding to the Spirit, but they just want something a little more reverent. And so I, I I commend them on that in some way, as long as they follow the principles of Scripture. Oh, the, in, within Judaism, for I was raised, you every song, everything you did was a cappella. There was no musical instruments, you, no piano, no organ. Uh, it was, why? Because we will not sing until Messiah comes. Mm. There will not be real music until Messiah comes. Wow. That's an interesting take. Never but heard then that. you go to a reform congregation. Yeah. <laughs> I had 
people that I was going to church with. I mean, to, uh, reg- evangelical church, normal, what we would call worship. And on the high holidays, Rosh Hashanah, we've t- c- covered that in our podcast, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, the, the synagogues were not looking just for uh, a person to sing. They were looking for the highest quality and hiring some Christians that I knew because of the 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 their quality of playing an instrument. Oh, the synagogue was hi- hiring. They were the hiring goyim, <laughs> but they were first class, either yeah. uh, musicians or singers. I met them and they paid them. Yeah, because they wanted for them in these more reform synagogues, beautiful buildings and ornate inside and very prestigious places. When they sang. And by the way, Gentile or not, they're Hebrew, impeccable, impeccable. If they were playing violin or or uh, a clarinet, whatever it was, they hired the best, the best. Yeah. The best. So from my Orthodox background, I, I, everybody singing first a cappella. First I, of all, you wouldn't have you you wouldn't have instruments. Is anything okay? <laughs> Let alone goyim playing or singing. Ay, ay, ay. Now, so you see, it's not unique to but evangelical. I, I also noticed in in certain reform synagogues too, they had uh, they had organs. hundred percent. You're right. That is almost like copying a church at that time, and that was well. What's interesting? And they had stained glass windows. Yep. And, uh, in fact, Chris, Shabbat, right? Shabbat is when you're supposed to worship. There are some reform synagogues. Who worship on Sunday? You're kidding! I did not know that. Really, no, I'm not kidding you. I'm not. There are all. Look, who started it first? Did I, churches start Sunday school first, or did or did uh, synagogue start uh, Shabbat service? Uh, I don't what know. Do they call uh, my Shabbat Orthodox classes? synagogue Saturday would classes? not have. We had Sunday school because you're not allowed to write on. You're not allowed to drive. You're not. You ha- Sunday school was on Sunday, like a school. I had books. Uh, we had to buy books, and we had homework. We had the whole deal. I knew that there <laughs> you were, were you like these crazy Christians uh, are going to school uh, on Sunday. Uh, well, there were Jewish people who were on. Sh- they were going to Shabbat school, so on the Sabbath they were going to school. I I just said, hey, this is all this is craziness. All right. Well, listen, Steve, we've been yapping for a great. This is great. I, I actually love this because I think this is the meat and potatoes of uh, what it, the Jew and Gentile podcast is all about. We hope that as the Jew and Gentile podcast, we're communicating to you uh, the Jewishness of the Bible. And that's what it is. It's a Jewish book. Jesus went to synagogue, you know. Well, you know, Chris, I, I know we've gone off uh, off, us, off to the side here, but this is really where it's at in terms of learning from one another and understanding the grassroots of biblical Judaism and be able to see that within Christianity and Judaism there is a, a rhythm yeah and it's 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 pretty wide and yeah. people take liberties and uh it's just a, an interesting thing and Christians value I think when they get an un, they they understand the Jewishness of the Bible they can learn where their roots are come from well all i know is area code 260 started this great conversation so thank you very much <laughs> hey steve you know we've been talking about this but you wanted to talk for a moment about jewish afterlife Aye, there's an interest <laughs> you came across i want to hear this that you read it to me but i was you know i was doing some other other things why yep. don't you get into this one this jewish is afterlife. called i've been reading these this was probably published over 20 years ago it was a special article in moment magazine and it was on uh, life after death, the various gr- beliefs concerning life after death. And we've, I think this is probably the sixth one I've done or fifth. This one's titled, Chris, Rolling to Jerusalem. We're rolling <laughs> to Jerusalem. So he, the, the writer, his name is Tudor Parfit, P-A-R-F-I-T-T. Oh, wait, can we say really quick, the last week that we did one, Alice, your wife, um, you know, we, all these have been various writers from different sec, uh, areas of Ju- of Judaism. Some of them very secular, a- atheistic, even all the way to very religious, orthodox. And the person that you have mentioned and read last week, Alice, your wife, babysat, ba- babysat for his kids when she yep. was younger. Yep, that's so because interesting she, because she lived in New Haven, Connecticut. She, uh, Yale uh, School University, Yale University was right by her. She eventually worked at Yale University. Yeah, she's a sharp I'm cookie. telling you, you she, married up. She married down. I can <laughs> you, tell you, you that. I up. advise people always marry up. She married down. <laughs> I married up. 
Well, anyway, rolling to Jerusalem, you always have to make a distinction between high Judaism, the Judaism of the great rabbis and scholars, and popular Judaism, full of local beliefs and superstitions. Now, this is, this is a Jewish guy writing. One very widely held belief was Gilgal, which at the popular level was taken to mean the act of rolling underground passages from wherever you died. Let's say you died in Manchester. This person is English. So you're in the UK, you're in Manchester, England, until you get to Jerusalem. This rolling was accompanied by Hibut HaKaver, the beating of the grave. You're beaten to a pulp as you go by. The demons who live in the tunnels, they pummel you. And the point, point was that the resurrection of the dead would happen when the Messiah comes to Jerusalem. So that's where dead bodies and souls should go. So, so wait, you die in Manchester, you're buried, but then you're on a trek underground you're to Jerusalem? You're on a trek, and on the, your soul's going there. But in the meantime, these demons are beating you. beating you to a pulp. <laughs> oh so God. what's a Jewish person to do? What You know this. So... A lot of Jews, this is a lot of Jews would try to avoid this. You want that's smart. Yeah. But you do not want confrontation. <laughs> so so uh, you avoid this by going to Jerusalem when they knew they were about to die. Oh yeah, I'm I just been given the bad news. I'm in hospice. I'm not staying home. I'm going to Jerusalem. Oh, well, so you bypass the underground travel. This belief was very widely attested through the 19th century. Wow. There are passes and passports. There are reports from seafaring folks who said there are Jews on board ship very, very ill. <laughs> and they're trying to get to Jerusalem to die. Oh, my goodness. It's not Christianizing exactly because Christianity doesn't have this idea of a storehouse of souls waiting somewhere specific. The afterlife in folk Judaism does take on some aspects of Christian theology— but it's very much more of a real place down to earth, literally under the earth. A tribe I study, the Lemba in Africa, rose to some prominence 10 years ago when it was shown their DNA was very similar to that of other Jews, particularly the famous Cohen or Kohanim or Cohen, like your son, yep. Cohen. The Cohen gene, which, by the way, they can isolate, Chris, that's true. Yeah. They can. This Cohen gene found in their priestly clan. So it looks very much as if their ancestors were Jewish. It's very difficult to reconstruct the religion of this group because with the arrival of colonialism in Africa, their practices were pretty much destroyed. But some things have come through. One is the idea of returning to a place called Sena, S-E-N-N-A, which could have something to do with Zion. They think they came from a place on earth, and when they die, they will return to that specific place. It's interesting the way Jews are so rooted. I think it's one of the ways Jews are most different from others. Oh, my goodness. Uh, so underground? Beaten, all oh I know is goodness. I don't want to be nope. beaten up. <laughs> I'm when go, you think you're I'm ready going to there, go. I'm alive. <laughs> when you think you're ready to go, let us know. We'll board a it's plane. It's enough you're dead. You don't need to be beaten up. <laughs> we got to get you over there so you don't have to do that <laughs> underground that, service, that right? underground travel. Well, you know what? We don't want you to have to travel underground. And fortunately for us, we are in Revelation chapter oh, 22. And we're in the good place. We're now. in no, the good place. Nobody being beaten up. We're not getting beaten up. So, Steve, why don't we go to Revelation chapter 22? Uh, I'm going to get my Bible here, so I'll let you get started. Oh, okay. Um, and and uh, I'm reading from the New King James. We're, Chris and I are different uh, in the sense I, I do have an ESV. I, I have my uh, New King James. He has his ESV. Whatever you're reading us along, you have your phone, your your Bible. We're at the in chapter 22. Isn't this exciting, Chris, that we're in the last? Have we been blessed? Has the promise of God in chapter 1 been true of us as we've really kind of journeyed through the book of Revelation. I always feel a sense of completion in a good way whenever I read through Revelation, because uh, you realize this is the summation of what God is doing. This is his plan all along is finally being realized. The promises are being realized. Everything that we have hope in is being realized. And so when you get to the end, you get that full picture of there is an end. There is a completion. We're not left we're not left uh, hopeless. We're left with a hope, and that is this is the hope. This is it, Steve. So uh, I, I always feel a sense of great completion and, and satisfaction and blessing when I finish Revelation. 
we're going to go through the first 11 verses here, and this is the river of life. Uh, chapter 21, you know, we had the new heaven and the new earth and Jerusalem dropping down. And now we're in chapter 22, and it said, He showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the middle of the street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, uh, which... Uh, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall, shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp, nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Then he said to me, These words are the faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of this prophecy of this book. Now I, John, saw and heard these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Then he said to me, See, that you do not do that. For I'm your fellow servant, and of your brethren the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal the words of this prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. Wow, Chris. Amazing, isn't this? You know, the thing that always gets me here at the end is that, uh, you know, the Bible spans several thousand, you know, about, I think, 1,400 years or so from Moses to John in writing and and in history even longer. We know Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And so, um, you know, when you go back from 90 AD all the way back to Moses, and then Moses is writing all the way back to the creation moment, when you get to all of those different writers throughout the Bible, uh, and you think about the fact that they didn't even, a lot of them didn't even know each other. We're talking about— Most of them didn't yeah, know each other. Yeah, they didn't know each other, uh, They and, and they were writing from different perspectives and different experiences going on in Israel's history. Some were there when Israel was created, you know, and some were there when Israel was in the middle of a kingdom or a split kingdom, and but they didn't know each other, and yet somehow in this, in this story there is a— thread that binds the whole Bible together. And I remember in when I was in Bible college, we did this um we did this uh thing with a bunch of friends. It was with Sam, your son, myself, and some other friends. And we all decided we would write, you know, someone would start writing a story and then they'd put it in the person's mailbox and then they would add to the story and then they would put it in the mailbox and they would add to the story. And we for like a couple months we made up this story that kept building on itself. It made no sense, and we knew one another, and we would—at you know, the end, it was funny. The thing that was funny is it was the most ridiculous story of all time. Well, here is God's Word that spans a very long time with people who didn't know one another, and yet it tells the story of God's redemption. From bringing us—we've done this before and talked about this—from bringing us from Eden in the Garden of Eden back to Eden again, where God's presence is with his creation. And what do we see in Revelation 22? A tree of life in the middle of the city. And again, the idea that God had brought everything back to the way it was intended to be from the beginning. He is with his people, there is no sin, and his presence is shining brightly. And the most important thing is, Steve, that you, myself, those who believe in the Lord Jesus are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, know that one day we will see God, we will see the Lord Jesus face to face, and we will not be consumed by his holiness. We are anticipating that, and that's what Revelation is setting us up for, uh, Revelation 22. And so I always get encouraged reading this because I just think, this is it. God didn't lead us down this path of confusing stories that don't make sense. Nope, from Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation 22, it's all telling God's story of him fighting for us to bring us back to this moment. It is amazing. Uh, I have uh, one of the study Bibles I have is called the uh, Open Bible, and in it, it has the scarlet thread of, of, of redemption. Hmm. And what it does is it connects Genesis to Revelation, and you could see the unity 
of the text. And so what's amazing is you're just describing, wait a minute, these people didn't know each other. They're separated by time. There's in some instances, they're not all writing in Israel. They're writing all over the place. He's mm-hmm. writing the last book. He's on the Alcatraz. <laughs> He's in Alcatraz, right? Isn't oh, Patmos. Pat, that's right. Patmos. That's where they put. That's where they put criminals. That's right. And he's a criminal. What was his crime? Sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's in Alcatraz. He's in Alcatraz. And yet, and yet, the whole thing, not just Revelation, is is bound together from the beginning to end. One of the books, but all sixty six books. They're individual books, and the genius of it is that they fit together into one dynamic story. You just said, you know, Chris, we just last year had a conference called From Eden to Eden. Yep. We divided up messages. I didn't do it. Jim Showers did it. We divided up messages, and all these, all of us took a different message, and at the end of the conference, what happened? It fit together perfectly, not because we're geniuses, but because the text that we preached from is is done by a person. His name is the Holy Spirit. He's a real person, mm-hmm. and he is a very important part of how the text works. So he, he also is the one that woos us. It's the Spirit of God. And we've already seen that before most of Revelation does take place, remember the outline way at the beginning, what was, is, and is to come, we have this text that is... Uh, Really, the Spirit of God is the one that makes it all happen. You know, uh, you might, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this, but a lot of times people have interesting perspectives on what's going on in this moment, uh, because just prior to Revelation 22 is the new heavens and new earth, and then the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven. And uh, there are some people who say the new Jerusalem's hovering in yep. heaven. I don't see that in the text. I think the New Jerusalem comes. It does. It just says the New Jerusalem comes down. Uh, you know, because it doesn't say it touches down and you know sets itself up. There are some scholars that think that oh, it, it's hovering above in the sky. I don't see that. I think it's coming all the way down. But it's also interesting because I think we get confused because I think we're still talking. The, the New Jerusalem doesn't have a temple in it, but the New Jerusalem itself is functioning as a temple in and of itself. And in it, it talks about the fact that there's no more, there's no more darkness. Uh, you know, there's no need for the sun because the glory of God, and we, we, uh, many, many, many episodes ago, we had done a whole episode on the tabernacle and the temple. And we talked about God's glory coming down into the tabernacle and temple. Well, I see it that the new Jerusalem is functioning as a temple and God's presence is in it. I still think that there's a sun that's shining outside of the temple. But when you're in the holy city, when you're in the new Jerusalem, you don't need the sun. God's glory is shining as bright as can be inside that temple. So the the temple, there's still temple imagery going on, but it's no longer a small temple in Jerusalem. Now it's the entire Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven that has God's presence in it. I also believe that except for the rapture of the church— or, or when Jesus ascended, or when uh, um, Enoch ascended, or Elijah ascended. Everything has come down. Genesis, God came down in the cool of the day and mm-hmm. talked. Uh, Mount Sinai, God came down to Moses. Mm-hmm. Uh, Moses went up, but he didn't go up in the sky. He went up Mount Sinai. That's right. He was on the earth. Um, the, the rapture, I believe, we go up. But when Jesus returns, so, you know, a lot of times you'll hear people say, we'll go up to heaven. Well, if you die, if you die as a believer, I believe you'll go up to him. But when this takes place, everything is down. Down. He's yep. coming down. He is, uh, the original purpose was God to relate to his creation. Man's incapable of going up to God. God has to be the, the, the activator. He comes down to man. And that's exactly what's happening here. It's coming down. But now earth is clean. That's right. It's fit. It's better than the garden, but like the garden in the sense it was a habitable place for a holy God to, to traverse. And I believe the New Jerusalem—I I know, hey, I could, we could be wrong. Well, I, one of the things that's going to happen real quick, we're all going to get a—if we get raptured, we're going to get a taste. We're going to get PhD. That's right. We're going to get a we're taste of what the, the real answer is here. As we're going up in a split second, we're going to hear 
you were so wrong on this, yep. this, this, and this. And by like this, our minds will, oh man, what was I thinking? And then I'll say, is anything okay? Is anything okay? Here we go. Is anything okay? <laughs> <laughs> but it, that is a great point that I think, I, th- at least this is what I try to do. And Steve, I, I sense this from you too. You have to have a humility with the scriptures. It's okay to say you don't have the right answer. You know, I remember when I first started the Institute of Jewish Studies um, uh, with the Friends of Israel many years ago, uh, 2000, I took the Institute of Jewish Studies. And I remember my professor saying when we, we didn't even, our first lecture from him, was, hey, look, um, it's okay not to have the answers. You know, when you go to a Bible college or you go to a seminary, people look at you because they think you have the answers. You know what? They'll respect you more when you say, I don't know. And there's a Hey, that's my byline. Yeah. <laughs> I don't that's on my tombstone. <laughs> I don't know. I didn't know. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> but I do think you have to have humility coming to the text because, uh, you know, it's okay to say, I don't know. And especially when we come to Revelation, there are things that we are certain of about Revelation. And there are certain things we ha- we that are still being debated, still being questioned. And it's okay to have a person, it's okay to hold on to the things that we believe, but it's also okay to say, you know what, I'm going to hold on to it with humility. And, and, uh, and that's important too, because there's a lot of questions that are still going to be answered when we see the Lord face to face. But none of those questions, I agree with you, Chris, but none of those questions have to do with what we would call the fundamentals of the hundred percent. Yes. And that's what's important. There are things that are, you know what? We'll we'll try to guess. But Jesus, is there a Jesus? Yes, 100%. there's a Jesus. Yep. Was he born in Israel? Yes, he was born in Israel. A virgin, yeah. Born of a virgin. Is he the Messiah of Israel? Yes. Is he the Savior of the world? Yes. Did he really physically, literally die and his shed blood was for our sins? Yes. Is he coming back? Preach yes. It. Yep. Visibly, bodily. He's, those are the fundamentals of the faith, uh, and they're they're preached throughout the text. And so now, if you talk to some of our reps here, a humble, all of the our speakers are humble men who are committed to the Word of God. But I'm telling you, Chris, you bring up a particular doctrine, they will dig in and tell you, yes, I, I could be wrong, but I'm not wrong that often. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. I appreciate that. But that's why it's good to be uh, have a, a humble attitude toward But I agree with you 100% on the orthodox principles and doctrines of who we are as Christians that bind us together. Uh, but uh, Revelation's been a great book to study together, and I think we should end again with what uh, what what, uh, what John is saying here in Revelation chapter 22, when he says, look, I am coming soon, it says in verse 12, my reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they might have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, sexual immorality, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehoods. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David. I am the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes to take the free gift of the water of life. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this scroll. If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described on this scroll. Steve, that sounds like when... That's a lot of service, I'll tell you that. That sounds like when the guy drops the scroll in the synagogue. Oh, big time trouble. (laughs) And if anyone takes words away from the scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this scroll. He who testifies to these things say, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Amen and amen. Chris, what a blessing. What a blessing. And you know what? The, the, the prompt is, number one, it's a blessing to read Revelation. Number two, don't add to it and don't take anything away from it. Its words are perfect, and it gives us the hope we have to look forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus. Well, now I got a question for you. We're okay. moving from Revelation. What in the world? We're approaching number 100 mm-hmm. soon. 
And what are we going to do? Well, I have no idea. What are we going to do? I know what we're going to do. Are you ready? I'm ready. You are going to walk us through some of the, remember, some of the elements of uh, of uh, what Jewish people wear for prayer. You know, we see these pictures of Jewish people wearing... Oh, we saw one, didn't we, of the, oh, Has- yes. of the Hasidim. My wife found that one. Yeah, that was good. This morning I got an email from Alice. Uh, you had asked her to send it, and it talked about a tire shop. And Jewish people walking the strumels. They were wearing their strumels, <laughs> and, and that looked like furry tires. Their tires, their big Jewish. Hats. And we're talking about automobile tires. Yeah, <laughs> uh, because there is a branch of the Hasidim who wear these. I don't even know how to describe them, but they look like furry tires. Yeah, and so. The byline, it was a comedian who said that yeah. <laughs> said look like they were hiding their tires. Yeah, hijacking a tire <laughs> shop and walking away with them. That's good. Now, look, we're all we're we're not making fun. I uh, you'll probably get a text at 424-444-1940. Direct it right to you. Direct it to me. We're not look, I, we one of the things in Jewish culture that we do is make fun of ourselves. <laughs> That's we almost every Major Jewish comedian finds a way to make fun of themselves. And not only that, I'm not in this category. They make a lot of money doing it. <laughs> You're not in this category. I'm not in that category. <laughs> you get bupkis for this, I buddy. get bupkis. I <laughs> get bupkis. Good. Well, listen, that's what we're going to be doing for the next uh, episode or two, is looking more into some Jewish culture and customs. So if you have any questions, text us 424-444-1948. And also, just a fresh reminder that the Jew and Gentile podcast is sponsored by FOI Equip, where it's your opportunity to learn the Bible hey, we're in from a Jewish two. perspective. Week two. That's right. We're looking at... At uh, Heroes of the Early Church with Tim Harrison last week. He used you and me, Chris. I know. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. He made me old. But, uh, well, of course, I am old. So he, he, made you he didn't old, really do it. He made you the older guy. He made me the younger younger guy. But he he's going through, uh, he talked about Athanasius last week and the importance of Athanasius's teachings. A lot of our listeners won't even know who Athanasius is, but he's pretty important, he's, isn't he? He's very important. You know, when you were just talking about the fact that the scriptures teach foundational truths about who Jesus is, uh, of his death, burial, and resurrection. These are things that we that that define us and identify us as Christians rooted in what the Scriptures teach about Jesus. Athanasius said he is God. Jesus is God. Very God. Very God. He's not a man. He was not created uh, out, of the, out of thin air. He's been God from the beginning to the end. He is the Alpha and the Omega. And where did that concept come from? Well, of course, it's rooted in the Scriptures, but our church today holds to these important things because Athanasius stood up for the truth of God's Word. And that's why Tim uh, Harrison is teaching these great truths about early church history. Um, and uh, you can still register for the class. You can go to foiequip.org and register for free to go to our— How many times? Free, 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 free. We got, there you go. Somebody came up to me the other day and said, free, 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 because <laughs> our classes are free. And so we want to encourage you to be sure to go to foiequip.org. And then next month— Paul Scharf is going to be teaching on the patriarchs and the presidents. Oh, that's going to be great. Is they're both great. They're, they're both great. Great classes. And then we'll have our fall and winter lineup coming up soon. Steve, I don't know if you know this or not, but I think I have to double check our schedule. You might be teaching Fall Festival Feast of Israel this fall. Ah, Maybe. News to me. Yes. So we have to double check that. But uh, we're going to have some great classes coming up. Uh, be sure to go to foiequip.org. Hey, and also be sure to text us if you have any questions, comments, concerns at 424-444-1948. Steve, what's going on in the news? Well, this comes, Chris, from foxnews.com. You sent this to me. And it's I just feel gross when I hear this headline. <laughs> I, I look at these. One of the things I do is kind of. Oh, surf the internet yes. for news. I go and the, no question, marketers are involved in headlines. And I, I saw this headline: bed rotting. Ugh. R O T T. I, I didn't. I couldn't even say ugh because I didn't. What does that mean? Uh, bed well, rotting. Bed what? rotting. It's just gross. Well, well, it well, sounds gross. Bed rot. I, I, I don't know. I thought somebody was putting out a bed on a. On their street because their mattress was in bad nope, shape. That's bed- not it. Nope, not at all. This is the headline from foxnews.com. Bed rotting is self-care, some insist, but mental health expert shares warnings about social media trend. <laughs> it, it says this, lounging in bed all day might seem lazy, 
But some Gen Z trend followers are now embracing it as a form of self-care. We got to get these kids up and out of bed. In Ugh. bed. Like the practice of spending long periods of time snuggled under the cover yeah, with snacks, screens, and other creature Gross. comforts. Gross. It's gaining popularity on social media. And Chris, there's a picture. Look at this woman. That's she, right. She's just sitting there. Her hair is all yucky. Uh, she's She doesn't look happy. She's on her phone. She's got food all around oh, her. There's Tupperware all over the place. Do, do you know what this reminds me of? There was a moment where Karen and I were watching this show, The Hoarders. Do you ever watch Hoarders? Oh, now that's uh, I I I gag. I can't take it. This is this is what happens if you bed rot for too long. <laughs> you just become a you just it, it gets nasty and gross. Uh, but uh, listen, I know what it means to want to just sit back and relax for a little bit. I can do I could easily just take a day and do zero bupkis. But I got to get out of bed. I'll do it in front of the TV. I'll go sit outside. I got but. I can't sit in bed all day. It'd be gross. Well, listen, Chris, Dr. Ryan Sultan, a board-certified psychiatrist, research professor at Columbia University in New York, and medical director of Integrative Psych New York City, who treats many young patients, called the bed rotting trend fascinating. <laughs> That's it? That's what he said. Wait, he's a PhD and in, everything? In our current culture, with too much to do, too many expectations, and too much productivity, many individuals are being burned out and aren't getting enough sleep, Sultan told Fox News Digital. It's easy to see why taking time off to be, to lie around, literally, is appealing, he oh, said. You know what, this... I I go back and forth on Let's this. Let's ask our listeners. Look, we've asked them about Mug on a Mug, which, by the way, this week we're going to che check a place that might produce our Mug on a Mug. Yep. But you all said you wanted a Mug on a Mug, uh, we, so we're coming. I'm, we're coming I'm at right you. with you. Now we want to ask you at 424-444-1948, would you like to bed rot? <laughs> gross. <laughs> Is it gross, or do you need a full day with your Tupperware and your salads and your uh, phones and all that, uh, you're going to have in the show notes access to yep, fox.com. They, they can find out if they're a bed rotter. Are you into bed rotting? That's what we want to know. The, the, the whole premise, though, that I've got too much to do, blah, blah. You know, I'm going to tell you something. I, I would love to transport our culture back 250 years when it was all about survival. You know, it was all about you wake up and you work that farm. You just work the farm all day long. My kids, today they wake up and they, they want to watch a screen. They want to play a video game. And you know what they hey, do? Hey, you were that way too, Chris. I, you but, weren't ready to work on a farm. But that's what I'm saying. I, I'm, I'm happy to admit. <laughs> I, I, know your, I know your mom and I knew your dad. You were no farmer. <laughs> I, there's no doubt. I did work in landscaping for a little bit. <laughs> But you're I no farmer. I was no, no, but that's what I'm saying. It's like if you transport these people back 250 years, I mean, we're, we're talking about people who sit around in bed all day long on their phones and they're Gen Zers. That's the big thing. We're not even talking about baby boomers or Gen Xers or millennials like myself. I'm on the old end of a millennial. But I'm just saying it's interesting to me because the whole thing was premised on we have so much going on, so much to do. I think a farmer 250 years ago would roll his eyes because everything depended on how hard a he farmer worked. today. Yeah, true. Would roll their eyes. Yeah. The idea I would like to hear from a farmer actually. Maybe, if you're a farmer, if you're a farmer, give us text, text us. us at 424-444-1948. We want to hear what what are the when you milk your cows, what are you going to tell them when you're rotting in bed? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, cows, I'm sorry, not today. No, we're I sorry guys, I can't get you milk and today. And the chickens, we got to fit uh, tomorrow. I'm doing some bed rotting. I need some self-care, okay? <laughs> That's I, I do. I think about that all the time. Just, it, you know, it, to me, it's getting a bit much. And I think we're training up a group of students and young adults to just think they can lay around. This is maybe I sound like an old person, but you're getting pretty close. Uh, but here's what I'd love to see on a real farm. I, I hope there's a farming somebody on a farm uh, yes. who will contact us. Take but a picture. Text let's, it. We'll let's, take let's take let, let's take your age group. You're 41, right? You're yeah. 41. All right, and you have kids. Your oldest one is 12 or 13, right? Not 12, yep. 12, okay. So you're on a farm, though. 
And Olive says to you, she normally has her chores and she has you. Everybody's got assignments. Somebody takes care of the chickens and somebody's doing the garden and all. And Olive says to you, Dad, I'm rotting in bed today. Oh, what are you telling her? Um, You're not rotting in bed. No, please. That's gross. I mean, come on. You got your chores to do. Do your chores and then rot. Uh I, the the other thing I saw the other day, Steve, that you know Jordan Peterson, uh, yep. uh, he's on the mm-hmm. Daily Wire now, and he he was a professor uh, up in Toronto University, I believe, of psychology. A very brilliant man. Um, he was being asked about you know doing speeches and the make your bed, Jordan Peterson yeah, says. That's right, make your bed uh, before you go telling the world how to fix its problems. Make your bed first and start fixing your own problems. Uh, I, I appreciate that, but he—they were asking, you know, you get a lot of pushback whenever you speak, and he said, you know, when I, you know, what I started doing is I do my lectures at eight o'clock in the morning now. And he goes, I get no pushback. You know why? Because all those kids that show up to protest, they don't wake up for the eight o'clock <laughs> class. So that's when I do it, and I thought that genius. They're all bed rotting. (laughs) They're all rotten in bed. Anyway, so read that article. Get to us four two four 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 nineteen forty eight. Let me know if you think like me. Maybe I'm getting to be an elder cocker here, an older person, and I just think that way. So there you go. All right, Steve. The next uh, article that I thought was interesting, I sent to you the other day as we were texting back and forth, is uh, that Ben and Jerry's uh, posted online. (laughs) Ben and Jerry's posted online, and Ben and Jerry's always like talk about elder cockers. That's 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 what Ben and Jerry. That's what they. They are, but if they always insert themselves into some interesting political situations. And if hey, look, if they're just trying to market, they're doing a good job of it. Uh, they they inserted themselves into Israeli politics. Oy, they yes, when they were pulling all of their products out of the uh, uh, Judea and Samaria, um, and now they did a post on the Fourth of July uh, that said this: "This is the Fourth of July." This is Ben and Jerry's tweeting this. This is 4th of July. It's high time we recognize that the U.S. exists on stolen indigenous land and commit to returning it. Learn more and take actions now by going to benandjerrys.co, blah, blah, blah. So you can click on a link and take action. So this is the Newsweek headline after this tweet they did. It's great. Indigenous chief wants to take back Ben and Jerry's HQ built on stolen... Like, give us back the land, Ben That's and right. Jerry. Give us back the land. An indigenous tribe descended from the Native American nation that originally controlled the land in Vermont the Ben and Jerry's headquarters is located on would be interested in taking it back, its chiefs has said, after the company publicly called for, quote, stolen lands to be returned. Don Stevens, which is an interesting indigenous name, Don Stevens, chief of the Nolhegan Band of the Kusik Abenaki Nation, one of four descended from the Abenaki that are recognized in Vermont, told Newsweek it was always interested in reclaiming the stewardship of our lands, but that the company had yet to approach them. Listen to this, Chris. In the article, maps show that the Abenaki a conference of several tribes who united against encroachment from the rival tribal confederacy controlled an area that stretched from the northern border of Massachusetts in the south to New Brunswick, Canada, and in the north and from the St. Lawrence River to the west to the east coast. That would put Ben & Jerry's headquarters located in a business park in southern Burlington <laughs> within the western portion of this historic territory, though it does not sit in any modern-day tribal lands. In other words, they... Before the tribal, the modern tribal ones are on indigenous land. (laughs) So they go back before the other ones and they're saying, give it back. Give it back. You know, I don't know if there's a follow up to this. This uh, article was Ben and Jerry are occupying land. Yeah, they're they're occupiers. Hey, they're the ones offering their land. (laughs) They should give it to them. There's even a link you can click on. Maybe they'll just Uh, say, yeah, yeah, we'll give that back. Have we heard it? Have we heard from Ben and Jerry in response? Well, that's the thing is that they originally didn't respond. This is a June. July 7th article. So they could have responded between now and what is now July 11th. That's when we are recording. So I'll do a little follow-up and see for our next We want to know what they did. That's right. We want to see this tribal people get their land back, Ben and Jerry's. Maybe we can move their headquarters over to the uh, Judea Samaria. That's (laughs) (laughs) Occupiers, occupiers. That's right. All right, Steve, this uh, last one I picked up on, uh, on the Times of Israel, which is just interesting what's going on in Israel. New York, it's, this is the title. 
New, uh, New York Times Friedman, who's the edit, one of the editorial writers for the New York long Times. Long time. Long time. Columnist. Yep. Uh, Net says this, Netanyahu government making rethink of U.S.-Israel ties inevitable. And so it talks about the fact that says this, New York Times columnist Thomas Friedman penned a column Tuesday warning that the Biden administration is reassessing its ties with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's government amid growing American alarm over the actions of the hard-right Israeli coalition. Friedman believes that this judicial overhaul push is just a smokescreen to engage in, quote, unprecedented radical behavior that is undermining our shared interests with Israel, our shared values, and the vitally important shared fiction about the status of the West Bank that has kept peace hopes there just barely alive. Steve, uh, you know— Thomas Friedman is, like you had mentioned, he's on the liberal end of the spectrum when it comes to understanding Israel um, and uh, his approach toward politics. Uh, now, Friedman knows a lot about Israel. He is a— He's an expert. Br- brilliant. Can, brilliant. Brilliant man. No question. You can disagree with a brilliant person. Um, he is brilliant. But I, I disagree with his approach on this. I mean, uh, number one, it's funny to think that they stalled peace talks— with uh, Israel and the Palestinians, I mean, the, there have been stalled peace talks with the Palestinians for a long time, um, and I don't think it's just Israel's fault. The Palestinians don't help with the peace talks at all. I, I know under the Trump administration, which I'm sure uh, uh, Thomas Friedman would roll his eyes if I'm saying this right now, um, but uh, the, under the Trump administration, they pushed for a peace deal, um, and uh, and the Palestinians didn't even show up to the table. So, you know, there. The, the, this is an interesting take. Friedman, of course, is saying that the Biden administration isn't even considering talking to Israel because of their government. But I just think that what hypocrisy, Steve. It's hypocrisy because you can go over and fist bump, you know, the Saudis, but you're not going to go over and fist bump Netanyahu and his government, which is an incredibly liberal government. Hey, Yellen went over to China. And do you know what she did? Yeah, she bowed three she times. She bowed to she two people. Bowed. Uh, Look, the fact is that there's a, a strong, very uh, uh, intelligent, uh, well-versed people on Israel who are on the left, the far left. And whether it's in, in the United States, it's been left versus right, unfortunately. Uh, there, there, there seems to be very little desire on either side to try to come to the middle. And you're the enemy automatically. I don't think Friedman is an enemy of Israel. No. I think he views things through a left left side uh, of po- politics and actually just doesn't like what they're doing. He does not uh, like Netanyahu uh, at all. You know what's interesting? There's a lot of Israelis and Jewish people that don't like Netanyahu. 100%. And you know, Chris, we're called the Friends of Israel. One of the things we do, and, and because where our ministry lies, our ministry is we unconditionally love Israel. Israel. That is, when there's a Democrat in office, and Friends of Israel has been in existence for 85 years. When there's a person uh, who we don't agree with, who's the prime minister, we still love Israel. We still do the same things. We support and help when they need various things. Uh, God's people, the, the church, has responded, and we will do that. We have opinions, though, and I'm glad. I'm glad that Friedman has an opinion. I just think that his opinion is slanted with the filter of not really allowing the people to talk, and the people in Israel talk through their vote. Yeah, a hundred percent. And they they could vote out the entire right wing government, which they've done, which they've done before. They, That's what I think. I, I feel like they keep missing. Now we have to admit, Israel is a conservative state. Now it's a conservative government. It's a mixture, though, Chris. It's a very interesting dynamic. In so many ways, we as believers would disagree with their domestic policy. Oh, yeah. But we agree with their security. And that's the way the average Israeli is. Yep. And so guess what? They they would rather not vote for a group who they disagree with dom- domestic issues. They want to vote with the person that they believe is going to keep them safe. And so far, it's the people to the right who seem to— uh, at least for the average Israeli, that by their vote, not just don't just include Likud. You have to include the other others in the coalition 
that you, as you said, they are the majority of the voting public in Israel. They want a strong Israel to protect them, and then they'll, a Yiddish word, they'll bircha, they'll complain. <laughs> they'll, they'll complain and fight for all the liberal domestic issues. I thought it was interesting that Friedman said that this was a smokescreen. That's what he called it, the, ju- the judicial overhaul, which is what's creating all of the all of the protests and everything is just a uh, smokescreen to engage in quote unprecedented radical behavior. Uh, you know that to me. What's the you'll have to explain more what the radical behavior is. I mean, I think this is for most Israelis pretty radical that they're trying to change the judicial system. Um, and so I don't know what else they could be possibly trying to do. Maybe Friedman could define that more in his op-ed. But uh, anyway, it's a, it's an interesting piece I thought was Chris, something worth talking about. I could turn any conservative person, uh, any liberal person who looks at Israel as too far to the right and too worried about war, I can turn them into a conservative. All I'd have to do is get a situation in their house where they probably have a fence. Almost all of, all of us in America, many of us have fences. And somebody's shooting at you. And you call the police department. You're calling the police. They're shooting at me. Well, are they hitting anything? No, they're not hitting. It's hitting the ground. Then don't complain. Yeah. Leave it alone. <laughs> yeah. What? That's what goes on in Israel. Yeah. Missiles come. They ask. Are, they're taking a too aggressive approach to respond. Yeah. Well, if it's your house and you're fortunate enough they're missing, you're calling somebody to take them out before they don't miss. That's right. And it, it it's amazing how it uh, it doesn't register, and it only registers when it's you. Yeah, you know, uh, Israel still is a very patriotic country too. I, you know, patriotism drives Israel, whether you're on one side of the aisle or the other. It's you know, patriotism is very important. I've noticed that in being over there on tours and 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 being a part of uh, Israeli culture because everybody goes through the army and when you go through the army you know the amazing thing about David uh, or um uh, uh Thomas Friedman is that you know he's a zionist he is a zionist 100% and we, i'm a christian zionist and so we just disagree on it's really the, the it's two americans disagreeing about the israeli politics and which both of us have it's none of our business really it all has to do with how they vote but, it, they ma- vote. but it makes good op-eds and it makes good jew and gentile podcasts uh, 100% <laughs> it's good fodder hey well listen we have got our yiddish word of the day everybody our yiddish word of the day steve are are you ready i think i'm ready you got the word okay fargenin Far, Fargainigan. Fargainigan. All right, Fargainigan. Someone's going to say, start pronouncing these Yiddish words you, right. You guys, you're, you're supposed to be Jewish. You're a fraud. To me, you're a fraud. That's right. I'm the Gentile. I, I get out. I just, free. I just never heard this word before. But I chose it for a reason because... Um, Fargainigan. Fargainigan. That's it. Fargainigan. Fargainigan means pleasure, delight, a joyous experience. Revelation 22. We're all going to be sitting around eating from the tree of life in the new Jerusalem for eternity. And And we'll greet each other and say, everything is okay. Everything is okay. Fargainigan. Fargainigan. (laughs) That's the Yiddish word of the day, everybody. Fargainigan. Hey, listen, thank you so much for being a part of the Jew and Gentile podcast. Hey, be sure to go to foiequip.org, and while you're there, you can sign up for Tim's class. Hey, listen, it's so important that you sign up. You can actually be a part of our mailing list that's there. Hey, also, would you let people know what you think about the Jew and Gentile podcast? You can do it on YouTube. You can do it on Apple Podcasts. When you rate our podcast, hey, guess what? It moves up the ladder that's not too shabby steve tell us if you're rotten in bed (laughs) that's what i want to know hey don't rot in bed please get out there listen to the jew and gentile podcast and we'll see you next week